Judah. Let me read a few verses, then uh, let me talk about it a bit. Judah, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friend, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly stepped in among you, they're godless men who change the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you of some things. Let's meander through this chapter. Note a desire for the church in verse 2. In verse 1, we are given insight to his love and zeal for the Christ. He calls him the master and that he is a slave to Jesus Christ, the master. In the latter part of verse 1 and verse 2, we are given insight, not only to his love and zeal for Christ, but to his love and zeal for the church. In verse 1, we read the words, the church is sanctified, kept, and called. In fact, that is the way it is presented in the Greek text not the way that is presented or translated in our NIV. There it simply says, to those who have been called, who are loved by God, the Father kept by Jesus Christ. The order in the text happens to be that they're sanctified or beloved, kept and called. Now we come to the second part in verse 2. Where the church is blessed. The little rendition of the text says it this way Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Verse 2 is written in a form of prayer. It's an intense longing, it illustrates his passion for the church and his loving care for them. Look at the extravagance that's mentioned in his prayer. 
is found in the word multiplied. Be multiplied. Jude is a man with a big heart. He's a man who thinks big thoughts. He's a man who prays big prayers. I like people who think big. Anybody out there say amen to that? You know, it's, you don't need faith to be a pygmy. You don't need faith to, to say, well, this is within my grasp. I can do this. If the Lord doesn't turn up, I can still do it. It takes faith and grace and a big heartedness to think big thoughts and pray big prayers, not for your own aggrandizement, but for the well-being of others. Jude is praying for the church. One of the groups which he had the oversight of, and he's praying for them, and he's praying big prayers. Many, many years ago, J.B. Phillips, he was the first one to paraphrase the New Testament, and he called them living letters. And then he paraphrased the Gospels, and, and uh, finally did the whole New Testament. J.B. Phillips wrote a book, and he simply said these words. The title of the book was, Our God is Too Small. He said, having gone through the New Testament, translating it into common idiom, and common language, so that we can grasp and understand it, he said, I've come to the conclusion that far too often the church sees God as being too small. How big is your God? How big is your God? <clears throat> when Riley was a, a little girl, <clears throat> she's still a little girl, but when she was uh, much smaller than she is now, he was asked her, how much you love us? She said, that much. <clears throat> It was the extent of her arms. That's what she could say was, that's my love for you, the extent of my arms. For her, that was big. How big is your God? Is he the extent of your arms? Because if he's only at the extent of your hands, of your arms, then you don't need him. You can do it on your own. But our God is much bigger than that. How big is your God? I suppose to you, he's not big enough. Because the word of the Lord simply says, I have not seen, ye hath not heard, neither has there entered the heart of mine the thing that God hath prepared for them that love him. My first sermon that I preached was on that verse of scripture. It is a masterpiece. <laughs> the only problem is, when I got home, my dad 
sat down. He said, uh, I'm glad you talked with that tonight, but he said, uh, you stopped too soon. I said, Dad, I said, all I knew to say in 15 minutes. I said, I thought it did very, very well lasting that long. No, he said, I'm not talking about the length of time. I'm talking about you ended your reading of scripture too quickly. So what do you mean? Well, the scripture goes on to say, I have not seen, yea, and not heard, neither has it entered the hearts of man the thing that God has prepared for him, but he has revealed them unto us by his spirit. I had waxed eloquently about the fact that we don't know anything about what's going on over there, that we just walk through in the darkness. I didn't read the but part, that he reveals it by his spirit. Church, ask the Lord to help you pray big prayers. I must be honest with you, I stand in awe of people who think big. You know, when uh, Mike Easton began to talk of, he wanted to touch this village, this community called Haltham City, I thought, Poof. because there was a time in the in the 80s when people talked of taking cities for God. And Bob Taylor used to say to me, Des, we need to take a city for God. I said, Bob, I'd be happy to take a street. <laughs> I said, I, I've not been able to take the court in which I live for, for Jesus yet. And yet you talk about cities. My prayers need to be stretched so that my faith can be enlarged, so that my vision can be increased. This, you doing okay? Are you okay? Yeah. Lord Jesus, that just touch your daughter tonight. This is, this is an allergy season and we don't like allergies. So Lord, just quicken her tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Be multiplied. It would be nice if he simply said, Lord, I just want you to, to bless them. He did. He said, I want you to multiply things to them. But what did he want multiplied? Well, first of all, he talks about he wanted them to, to have mercy multiplied. Eleos literally means compassion in an active sense. You know the difference between mercy, grace, and justice. There's a well, there's a well known uh, document. Mercy, justice is that we get what we deserve. I, I don't want justice. Mercy is we don't get what we deserve. I like mercy. Grace is we get what we don't deserve. That's the triad in the incredible grace of God, in the goodness of God. We don't get what we deserve. 
When people say, what we want is justice. No, 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 no. <laughs> On a horizontal level, yes. On a vertical level, no. We need mercy and we need grace. And here is Jude praying for this group of people. Saying, I want mercy to be multiplied to you. Now, obviously, in the New Testament, there's all kind of mercy. There's the mercy of salvation, which is documented in Peter 1, verse 3. Then there's the mercy that secures, documented in 2 Timothy 1.18. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he has helped me in Ephesus. Then there's the mercy that sustains. Four times in the New Testament. Mercy is mentioned in the context of false teaching. It's the covering of the Lord against that which is phony and that which is false. I pray tonight that God will multiply mercy to us. But not only is he talking about mercy, he says peace. The second blessing that he calls for is the abundance of peace. For you see, when a person has enjoyed peace with God, because of his mercy and because of his grace, he had the ability to enjoy the peace of God. And it's in this context, he's talking of peace within because there's mercy without. God wants us to enjoy peace. In fact, the the Old Testament equivalent happens to be the word shalom. The Greek term is irene. In Wales, that is a very common name for a girl, except it's called Irene. And the word Irene in the Welsh context comes from the, the Greek term Irene. And it simply means peace. But peace is not only a beautiful word, and it is. It's also a binding, bonding term. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of Peace, the bond of peace or the rope of peace. God wants to sustain us, no matter what the storm, no matter what the difficulty, he wants to sustain us with peace. I know the meaning of that term. I know it from experience. I don't talk about it anymore because it's a closed chapter in my life. But I know what it is to be in the midst of the storm and yet have the peace of God rule in your heart and in my heart because of his amazing and because of his astonishing grace. Peace. 
peace of God. Is there anybody here tonight that needs peace? Because it's for you. Oh. I don't know what you need, but you need more than peace. <laughs> peace. Peace that rules. That tranquility rests within. The word, the Hebrew term shalom, it's, it's usually translated peace. And the God of peace, shalom, peace. Or salam, if, it's, if you want to use the, the Aramaic term. But there's more to shalom than just peace. The word involves wholeness. Coming together. Being joined together. That there's no fracturing. There's no disconnect. No disconnection within your inner being. In fact, psychologists use the term the disintegration of personality. Whatever that means. It simply indicates that the person is coming apart. In sin, in shame, in sorrow, it's easy to feel as though you're coming apart. But the peace of God is that which holds you together and binds you together and keeps you together for the glory of God's name and for the well-being. And so tonight, turn to the person next to, next to you and say, Shalom. Let's make it official, okay? Say after me, Ivino. Shalom. Alechem. Let's roll together. Ivino, shalom, alechem. I give peace to you. That's what he just said. I give peace to you. That in the midst of the storm, not because everything is going good, but because God is good. Not because everything is in order, but simply because he is in order. And because of his mercy and because of his grace, he wants peace to be multiplied to us. Obviously, that didn't mean anything to you, so let me go on. Peace. But then it goes on to the next idea. And the third blessing happens to be that of love. Peace, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is the highest rung in Jude's small ladder, what we call prayer. He has prayed for the overflow of mercy. He has prayed for the dynamic flow of peace. And now he's asking, oh God, let love flow. We used to sing a song, love is flowing like a river, flowing out to you and me, flowing out into the desert, setting all the captives free. But all who have received God's mercy, who's experiencing God's peace, they have the capacity to pour out love to others. It's difficult to love or to show love when you're agitated. 
Huh? When a little child is having a tantrum, that's not the time to ask them if they love you. <laughs> Do you love daddy? <laughs> Do you love daddy? I love daddy. When Paul speaks of the bonding factors that come through these three integers, he's using a medical term, which is translated ligaments, or that which holds the joints and bonds the boy together. And so in this opening greeting, Pastor Jude is giving them a formula for success. He simply said, you're sanctified or beloved. You're chosen and you're kept. Now he said, I pray that because you have that triad, that you get the next one. That is that you will be overwhelmed in the context of having mercy, in the context of having grace. Um, what's the next one? Huh? Come on, you've got to help me. I'm an old man. Peace. And the next one? Love. So having said that, his passion is not only exhibited in the way that he prayed for the church, but look how... He exhorts the church. <laughs> I must be honest, I like Jude. I know that most people, they say, ah, it's, it's a kind of a boring book, but, but I like this guy. He's my kind of fellow. He simply says, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once of all entrusted to the saints. What does that mean? I don't know. It is thought that Jude was writing a letter and he scrapped it to write this letter. I was planning on writing a letter to you. I was, and the idea is I was writing a letter to you, but then I had to write this letter. Have you ever been writing something and in the middle of it you stopped? Tore it up and started again? Oh, I must be honest with you. When I was a younger man, I could write some awful letters. I really could. They call it uh, Welsh anger. No, it wasn't Welsh anger. It was just an unsanctified spirit. Some folk did some things. And I wrote a letter. 
how the paper didn't burn up, I don't know. I know it wouldn't have made it to the mail. So I, I thought, I'll let Steve Thompson re read this letter before, before I send it. Steve Thompson read the first paragraph. He said, for God's sake, Des, don't even think of sending it. He said, that's not you. I said, oh? <laughs> he said, write another letter. He said, tear that one up and write another letter. So I did. Dear brother, hypocrite, hypocrite. He's not dear and he's not my brother. Hypocrite. Jude is in the process of writing a letter. He puts it one side to write this letter. That's the attitude given by one series of scholars. The second idea is this, that Jude was one of those beautiful fellows called a procrastinator. Now, we don't have any of those in Texas. And we certainly don't have any of those in, in Bethesda, except the guy who's talking. I need to write a letter. I'll do it tomorrow. Then tomorrow comes. I need to write a letter. I'll do it tomorrow. I need to write a letter. I'll do it tomorrow. Procrastination. Is there anybody here who has ever procrastinated? Don't raise your hands. This is not a confession session. There can be, there can be tragic consequences for procrastination. Let me tell you a story. I was brought up in a very, very small village. Everybody knew everybody. In fact, everybody knew too much about everybody. Every Sunday morning, our church used to hold an open-air service. And so they'd have this open-air service from 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock in various parts of the village. And um, one Sunday morning, we were at the corner of a very long street called Brook Street. Why was it called Brook Street? Because there's a brook at the top and there's a brook at the bottom. That's what it's called Brook Street. And so we were holding this open air service. And we had a kind of a little regimentation. We'd go to different streets at different times. And uh, Brook Street was on the circuit. And so every time we'd go to this particular corner, a guy would come out and yell and scream at us and uh, give all kinds of uh, 
oaths and curses. And then we'd simply ask, say, Lord, bless him. And finally, he'd go back in and be quiet. And then we'd carry on with, with the service, sing some hymns, and then some folk could give some testimonies. One Sunday, one Sunday morning, we were there. And uh, a young guy gave his testimony. We had a little loudspeaker, give his testimony. And it was very, very sweet, very, very nice. Then we sang some more songs, and we got ready to, to leave. Out of this house came a lady. And she said that this young guy who had given his testimony, Sir, will you come back this evening? and talk to my husband. Well, we knew what her husband was like. We knew what her husband was. He was the head of the Communist Party in our village. And so we knew exactly her. And she said, will you please come back and talk to my husband tonight? She said, he's He's fast asleep at the moment. And I don't want to wake him up. But she said, after dinner tonight, will you please come? So this young guy thought about it for a moment. I said, um, if, if I'm going to come, I'll be there at 6 o'clock. Well, that was the time our evening service would, would, come, would begin, 6 o'clock. And usually in those days, the evening service was a big service. The Sunday morning service was a small service in which we just celebrated the Lord's table and uh, had prayer and everything. But Sunday night was a big evangelistic service. That's what it used to be in the bad old days. And so I came to look at this guy and said, what are you going to do? Oh, he said, I can't do it tonight. Why not? He said, I got a date. He said, I've been trying to get a date for this girl for months. She kept on turning me down. He said, tonight, I got a date. That as soon as church is over, I'm going to take her out for a cup of tea, which is typical in Wales. And uh, we'll sit down and we'll talk. I could have, I got a date with this girl. But what about, we can do that next week. In fact, he said, I think that we'll, we'll go back and hold the openness service there next week. And then I can talk to that lady and sort of say, I'll come at night. So, he, the date was a disaster. It lasted about 10 minutes and the, and the girl left. Next Sunday morning, we went back to Brook Street. Halfway down the, this large street, held the open air service. A lady came out, and the guy that had given his test for the week before walked over and said, I'm going to come 
I taught your husband tonight. She said, uh, no, you won't. Yeah, he said, I will. I will. He said, no, you, you, you can't. My husband had a heart attack and died on Monday morning. Procrastination. Procrastination. Now, I'm sure that that man turned his heart toward the Lord. But it would have been an incredible victory for that young man, having given his testimony to be invited to share this other guy. Scholars suggest either he'd been writing a letter and he discarded the first letter to write the second letter, or he'd been putting off writing a letter until something forced him to do it. And we would understand what forced him to do it. Listen to what he says. Although I was very eager to write to you. About what? About the salvation that we share. Literally, common salvation. That which we enjoy together because of the grace of God. Hello? <laughs> Take up the offering? <laughs> Again? <laughs> In the mouth of two witnesses, a thing is established. <laughs> Common salvation. In the of a truth. Though we are unique, and each one of us happens to be different, when we gather together around the table of the Lord, or when we gather to worship, we are one. Because we serve the same Lord. We share the same love. We experience the same life. We're involved in the same passion and purpose to serve him and to glorify him. And our truth, in the words of the old song, we are one in the bonds of love. Some better than others, some older than others, obviously. Some achieve more than others, but when we gather around the Lord, it's not what we have, it's not what we've done, it's what we are. We're one in the love of God. And so, what was the motivation for Jude want to write this letter? Well, we are told about it in verse 4 through verse 16. It speaks of, for certain individuals... Have slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of God into license for immorality 
and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So Jude says, because of their presence, I have to write a letter to you. The term that he uses is very, very interesting. It describes people who sneak across the border during, the dark, during darkness. This is the term that Jude uses. People have snuck in and taken you and caught you unawares. Or to use an old English expression, caught you napping, asleep, because you were unprepared. The word also is used to describe a slick attorney, one who knows that his client is guilty, but he's so crafty in the way that he presents the defense that instead of the finger being pointed at the perpetrator of the crime, is pointed at the victim. And people say, yeah, he or she deserved what she got, huh? It's the confusing of the mind. It's the twisting of logic. People have come in to twist the truth until you're not sure what is right or what is wrong. I submit to you that that's where our country is today. We've been so browbeaten. We've been so influenced by all kinds of stuff. People say, well, we don't know what's right and what's wrong. We don't know what truth actually is anymore. A confusion has set in. Jude is writing to a church. Simply saying, I don't want you to be confused. That's why I'm praying that you'll know what mercy is all about, what peace is all about, what love is all about in the salvative, in the salvific grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to come to knowledge, to come to grips. I'm not going to talk about the guy that snuck in. All you have to do is read the verses and they're a bad bunch of individuals. What I want to do is not look at the attack or the violation of the church. I want you, I want to highlight just for a few more minutes on the victory of the church. Jude says in verse 16, 
In fact, in verse, let, let me read verse 16. These men are grumblers, fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. And he says, but, dear friend, three times use that statement in that letter, dear friend. And three times is the underscoring of his heart's desire for them. He had already warned them in verse 2 to be prepared for what has taken place by doing something. How many folk are there that belong to Old North Side in the house? Oh, one, yeah, two. What was the sign on the bus? The bus that they had to go around picking up the kids. What was the sign? I'm contending earnestly for the faith. Taken from verse 3 of Jude. Jude asks them, I want you to be prepared. And so how can you be prepared? And he gives a series of answers. I'm going to touch on a couple of them in closing tonight. He said, but dear friends, remember what the apostle of the Lord Jesus foretold. They told you in the last times there'd be scoffers who would follow their own ungodly desires, so don't be surprised at that. That there'd be people who try to divide you, would encourage you to follow natural instincts, and they don't have the spirit. But you, dear friends, and he speaks of an internal safety net. Three things. Guard your heart. Guard your mind. And guard your spirit. These are the three internal defensive mechanisms which are available to the church who has experienced mercy, peace, and love. These are the three defensive mechanisms that's been given to a church which is sanctified, called, and beloved. These are the three elements and the first one is this. He said, dear friends, build yourself up in the most holy faith. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. And have the ability to defend it. That is the first criteria for the safeguarding of your life against the onslaught of the enemy. 
build yourself up in the most holy faith. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. Then be able to defend it against every assault. One of the tragedies that the church is finding out to its chagrin is that for the last 20 years, it has not given its, the, the emerging generation the ability to know what they believe, to know why they believe it, and to be able to defend it. So that when they get out from high school, when they get away from the overarching love and protective care of a home, they find themselves waffling, wavering, wandering, and failing. I don't know whether Barner is correct in this percentage of young folk that walk away from the faith in the last 20 years. I don't know if his percentage is correct. But I do know it's important for the church and for the young generation to know in whom they have believed and to know what they believe. Our faith is not in a system. Our faith is in a person. Our faith is in Jesus the Christ. He is the Lord. Why do we believe in him? For obvious reasons. I am very, very sensitive to this need because I abandoned my faith when I went to university. Or I can say, well, I lost it. No, I didn't lose it. I just dropped it. I heard other things, other ideas, in which they challenged this and challenged that. But one day, into our place of education, there came two men. One, his name was Alan Redpath, pastor of a huge Baptist church in the city of London. A little later, Alan Redpath became the pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. And he had a young man with him, a flashy young man. He could play a violin like you do. They had arranged to have a luncheon for college cards. Only two turned up. I turned up because it was free food. Our food's important to a college card. When Alan Redpath saw that uh, there was such a small number, he simply said to Stephen Alford, his colleague, you take it, I'll see you later. Stephen played the violin. Then he shared some ideas. He said, guys, 
if you're willing, I'll come back tomorrow. We'll have some more food. We'll talk together. If you're willing, I'll come back. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back. Next day, only one turned up. Me. That was a bad thing to happen. Here I'm one-on-one -on -one with the young man who'd been brought up in Africa. His dad was a, was a medical doctor in Africa. He began to talk to me. And I said, look, I've heard all that. My dad's a Pentecostal preacher. I said, I've been brought up in church all my life. In fact, I think I was born on the pew. And if I wasn't born on it, it's named after me. <laughs> and he looked at me straight eyeball to eyeball. And he said, young man, you're not as sharp as you think you are. Okay. He said, in fact, I want you to read five books. I said, read five books. We've got the end of the year finals coming up in two weeks. I'm not even going to be able to read a newspaper in this next period of time, leave alone five books. He said, yeah, but you could have all summer to read five books. He said, I'll even give you the books. I said, okay. You give me the books, I'll read them. He said, but on one condition. After you've read them, you'll come back and contact me. I said, yes, sir. A few days later, five books coming through the mail to my house. All five books were defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Looking at it from a different angle, looking at it from a different perspective, using a different argument, but all were on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I read them, and then I got a letter. Have you read the books? What's your argument? If Jesus rose from the dead, he is who he said he is. If he rose from the dead, he did what the Bible says he did. He died to save you from your sin. It's not whether you feel it. It's a divine fact. Now what? I got on my knees and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm not much. But if you'll take me, if you'll forgive me, I'll serve you. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Christianity is provable.
building yourself up in the most holy faith is to impact your mind. We look the others next week. God willing. Good night. God bless you. May you know the mercy and the peace and the love of God. Amen. Good night. Amen.